Hello, everybody. I'm Caitlin Brand, the host of the R Resources Podcast, and welcome. So you may have heard the phrase, geography is destiny, which is a common phrase alluding to the fact that geography and how the earth is is shaped um, helps define where civilizations sprout and how humanity spreads. Well, our guest today, Sarah Patterson, a mind geologist, would suggest instead that not geography is destiny, but instead geology is destiny. So in a previous encounter with Sarah, she explained to me the logic behind her thesis of if civilization is a ship, the rudder of the ship is geology and the sails are epidemiology, which I I must admit that when I first heard this, I, I found it slightly preposterous and I I still remain skeptical. (laughs) But after hearing Sarah explain the logic, I, I knew I wanted to share this with our audience. As a geologist, Sarah is slightly biased, but she does make a compelling case that the Earth's dynamism, our tectonics, geomorphology, and other natural geologic phenomena set the stage for where humans have sprouted up and where our civilizations have existed. So, for example, we talk about like the Atlantic Ocean, where for thousands of years, it was simply an insurmountable barrier for humanity to be able to cross. And so these types of geologic features that the Earth has do have some influence on how civilizations have arose. More importantly, though, um, in the case of Sarah's argument, is the fact that geologic barriers are in fact barriers and they isolate populations and prevent populations from mixing with one another. And this is where the second part of her thesis comes into play, and that is epidemiology, the study of diseases and how they spread. So Sarah argues that basically epidemiology is going to help direct how how civilizations are able to interact with one another and the effects of interacting across these large geologic barriers. For example, the Atlantic Ocean, um, which is a, a great example, again, that we talk about in the episode, talking about how the Spaniards came over from Europe to the Americas and how epidemiology really helped shape their interactions with the native populations. Yet, throughout all the many interesting facts that I learned during talking with Sarah, um, one of the most surprising facts was was offline where we discussed that Sarah has been thinking about this for many years, and it wasn't simply prompted by COVID-19 and the pandemic. And now it just happens to be that her thoughts are in high demand and high popularity. And this, this highlights something that I can't go without mentioning is that Sarah's an incredibly thoughtful person. Uh, So she's one of the few people I've met that when I ask a question, she's unafraid to have some silence between my question and her answer. She makes sure that her answer is something that she really wants to say and is something that she believes is of utmost accuracy and truth, which is something I, I personally strive to be able to reach and really respect. But unfortunately for me as the podcast editor, um, I had the, the joy of taking out many of those pauses in order to allow the episode to flow more smoothly. That said, I do want all the listeners to be aware of, of Sarah absolute thoughtfulness and I hope that you all enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So on the final note, 
After we finished recording this episode, Sarah and I started talking about tuberculosis, which is a a particularly fascinating facet of epidemiology. Um, And because the conversation became so interesting, we decided to start re-recording it. So at the end of the episode, you'll hear me and Sarah say goodbye and thank you and et cetera. And then you'll start hearing us talk again and have a brief little snippet um, learning about tuberculosis and TB and its severe influence on all of humanity. Uh, so, So it's a little mini short bonus snippet for all the listeners. Anyway, this episode is fact-filled and absolutely fascinating for everyone out there, Um, and I sincerely hope that you enjoy this conversation. So anyway, on with the episode. Hi, Sarah Patterson. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing pretty great. Um, pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Pretty excited to have you on. You know, as a second guest, I think it's always good to get diverse opinions. And so, you know, starting off with uh, Jody, that was a good diverse opinion looking at higher ed in mining, and, and now you're a geologist. And so, I think that'll give us a, a really good diverse view. Um, and on that note, I wanted to start off by asking basically how you would define the role of a scientist define the role of a scientist? That's a good question. Um, I would define the role as a scientist. That's so broad. Um, A person who asks questions, I think that's like the best way to put it is Mm -hmm. to be interested. Science, Science is just what is, what the world around you is. So to be a scientist, I think you just simply have to ask questions and like, um, be interested in the responses, like whatever you get, um, just acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. No, no, I, I love that. And the reason I ask is because you know, previously when you were doing your minor in the media interview, you talked about how you love geology because you're, you're doing pattern finding um, mm-hmm. and you're kind of reading the book of, of geology, finding these patterns and understanding them. Um, and so can you, explain kind of what you do more specifically in that broader context of asking questions and being a scientist in terms of geology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I, so my job kind of by definition as a geologist is a core logger. So, um, we get the core out of the ground and then it comes to us, we log it, and then that's used in the models, um, of mining, Mm -hmm. um, whatever mine you work at, like that's pretty much the basic definition of what a core logger does. Um, And within that, like as a geologist, I think the thing that we're trained to do is look at what people have identified before, like, and the history of geology is like naturalism, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. people just went out and they observed what they saw. And that was like, you looked at a leaf and you drew a picture of a leaf and you're like, oh, look at this really cool leaf. And then you showed it to other people and that defined you as a naturalist, as a scientist. And then like all of a sudden you were like identifying, oh, these silkworms eat these leaves and they do this, this, and this, and this. And you just learn that by Mm -hmm. watching them. Um, And that's the same thing with geology where you just kind of look at the mountains and then you sketch them out. And then you're like, oh, um, there's a discontinuity here. Like you have angular bedding at one and then um, an igneous contact on the other or something like that. And then you identify that difference, you give it a name, and then you pass that on to future generations. And that's basically what core logging is doing. You're just looking at it. Um, what are the minerals there? What's the lithology? 
were there any changes that occurred in the rock? And then you identify those and you pass on that knowledge. And then obviously, like you're you're taking that knowledge and you're making a map and using that to improve just mining in general or whatever you're trying to do. And then that's pattern finding though, that inherently. Um, so that's quite what I like about it. For sure. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go back. You said a few things I want to explain further. So I guess to start off, you talked about discontinuities in geology. And I thought that, that was actually a really good example. I'm um, explaining a f- kind of how geological concepts come into reality. Can you just describe like a classical um, discontinuity? Yeah, that is... I'm not going to lie. Please cut this out. I need to look at <laughs> um, Or an angular unconformity. This is absolutely terrible because I literally did um, my field camp in Scotland and I have visited this place and I have pictures of me laying on it. <laughs> I have simply forgotten the name <laughs> because that's how my brain works. Sicker Point. Um, Sicker Point is kind of the birthplace of geology where you see this older sedimentary rock that has been overlaid and as at an angular unconformity um, with younger rocks. And so we see the fault there. And that is that observation was one of the first um, instances of the birthplace of geology where things kind of progressed from there because we identified that um, as a geologic structure. That was, that was the 1800s, right? Yes. Um, 1700s. Wait, no, 1800s. Yes, you're right. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that's like the basis of geology is that, you know, if, if I can read this back to you is that you're looking at patterns, you're seeing things that seem interesting, um, just either geometrically by color, shape, pattern, and trying to understand them. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. So that's that one. That one's easy to see, you know, an angular unconformity, it's pretty easy. You have lines and all of a sudden they get intersected. Um, in, in terms of geometry. But now in terms of core logging, you're looking at a two and a half inch diameter round chunk of rock, basically <laughs> a big tube, right? Yeah. Um, so how are you, how are you observing these patterns from this two and a half inch tube? Um, a lot of it is extrapolation. So this is more on the modeling end side of things, but depending on the angle of uh, the vein or the joint or what you see in the rock, um, you can kind of extrapolate how many there are in a certain section based Mm -hmm. on that angle. So if it's a higher angle, you're likely going to encounter less in the core as you log it, but there will likely be more, um, there'll likely be more as you go on or when you're actually mining it. Um, So like looking at that, a lot of it is extrapolation. And that's kind of inherent. That goes back to the pattern finding in general, right? Because um, you're looking at these patterns and trying to um, create a map from them. Interesting. And, and just to be clear that you say a map, but it's more like a 3D world, right? Yeah, it, it truly is a 3D model. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can do a cross section, but obviously the cross section isn't going to be as good as being able to look at a 3D model and spin it around. Exactly. Specifically, you have um, experience looking at alteration sequences, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I don't even know a lot. I kind of know what an alteration sequence is, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> so from the very basics, 
what is an alteration sequence? And, and I guess my, my understanding of it at this point is that you have a bunch of core, you're logging it, you're looking at patterns, you're kind of observing various geologic features. And then alteration sequences takes that 3D model and puts it into 4D by adding time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Um, my The one that I studied or kind of looked at more in depth was SCARN, um, SCARN mm. analysis and SCARN alteration sequences. And that's a really nice and easy one to use as comparison because the long and short of it is that you have different minerals at different temperature of fluid that moves through the rock. It's going to alter in a different way and it's going to give you a different mineral sequence. So when limestone is heated and it has the correct fluids um, within it that it's altering. If it's hot, you're going to get a prograde sequence, which does not have water in its mineral molecular structure, <laughs> which I guess this might be going overboard for no. people who aren't aware. Yeah, but it's it's a prograde sequence. And then, and you have, that's where you typically get garnet. Um, you get, what else do you get? Um, you get a, some certain clays. Um, garnet is the most typical mineral you see in that assemblage. What, um, what's and hot in this case? I believe hot is like 700 C okay. Celsius. Yeah. I believe it might actually really, be hotter. Really hot. It goes up to, yeah, 1200 <laughs> C. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is quite hot. It is not your normal oven temperature. Yeah. Um, but then as that water cools, you begin to have um, hydrous minerals coming into the sequence and that garnet will alter to epidote or will alter to chlorite um, or will alter, alter to other clay sequences. Um, and then farther down the road, like when it's the fluid is distant from that initial um, starting point where the fluid percolated, um, you begin to get marble and different different minerals if it was carrying um, lead or it was carrying zinc. So mm -hmm. as you as you move, you have like this initial sequence of hot, cooler, and then very distal. And then those overlap in different ways. But okay. that's what an alteration sequence is. Okay, that that makes sense. So it's just like indications, in a sense, of, of what the conditions were. <laughs> this might be going too much in depth, but I am very curious at this point. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of the timeline, so like Garnet forms at the, the highest temperatures of water, but, you know, I'm, I'm speculating that there is overprinting. And I think you mentioned that yes. as it cools, it can go down to epidote and a lot of other hydrous minerals. So in, in your work, how are you differentiating what was just cool water flowing through and always cool water versus what was once really hot and then got overprinted or overlaid by uh, different conditions? Yeah. Um, Number one, that is really difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Like for me as um, a beginner geologist and experts, like sometimes you just have to say, "Well, this is all clay," and we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what it was. Um, but this, a lot of the times when you have, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> a lot of the times when you have meteoric water influence, um, there are oxides in that. So when you have meteoric water influence, um, it will um, turn things to hematite or it'll deposit. Uh, limonite, which are both um, iron oxides. And then you also have different sequences of clay minerals that you can analyze that usually give some context to it because clays 
and the minerals around it also help too. Like, um, do you still have copper in it? Like, um, is everything altered to hematite? Um, what areas of the deposit are you in? Like, do we have any, um, like zonation and other things like that? Yeah, exactly. Like, is there any context for it actually being at the surface that meteoric water would actually get that far? Is it near a fault zone? Um, yeah, was it near the surface? At what point? When you're putting this all together and you're looking at core logging, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is what are you looking for? Um, so, you know, you said patterns, but obviously this is a lot more than patterns. You know, you're looking at geochemistry, looking at um, geometries, different lineations, stuff like this. So what are you doing? I think the key, the key thing, there are two key things, I think. Um, you're looking at how much grade there is. So is this even a profitable deposit? And then second of all, you're looking for safety reasons. Um, how is this rock going to behave underground? Is it safe to mine through? Um, do you have frequent joints? Do you have fractures? Is this fault going to reactivate? Um, how strong is this fault? Um, how strong is this rock mass? Um, are these minerals, how are these minerals going to behave under a change in pressure and a change in um, just environment? Um, so that's, I think that's the biggest thing actually is like, we don't really go in there looking like, oh, as a research project, it's not a research project, I guess. It's like, we don't go in there um, looking for like, oh, is this quartzite here? Or like, how can we compare this quartzite to other like quartzites in the area? Like that kind of comes later in a sense, but it's really like, how does this quartzite behave? Like, does it have copper and are we able to mine through it? And will that be safe for the people who do have to mine through it? No, that makes sense. So, so in a broader context, you'd, you could compare it to like, like pixels on a screen in a sense. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're the whoever's doing a, an automated picture here, um, you're putting pixels on a screen, but you don't really realize it's a picture until you zoom out. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very similar. And that's also how our block models kind of behave in Vulcan. I don't know if you have any experience in Vulcan, but it's basically that. You have like a little cubic, um, cubic area, and then that cubic area is propagated um, depending on the... Um, properties of that cubic area just breaking it down into smaller and smaller chunks mm -hmm. just like calculus uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay well cool so so that's what you do you're you're an exploration geologist um and you know you're you're logging core you're finding these patterns but i have you on record at talking about epidemiology and geology and in particular you said geology is the rudder of humanity and epidemiology would be the sales. What does that mean? <laughs> um, I was trying to think of a really good example to illustrate this. And I think a really good one is the Middle East. And I was thinking of um, Egypt in particular, where you have the Nile River flowing through this, okay. or flowing through the country. Um, is there a specific time frame? Uh, no, not really thinking in particular okay. time frame. I'm mostly thinking like early settlement, um, ideally, okay. because it was when you have a good geologic, you have good geologic locations and all the areas that cities have sprung up. Like it's only recently, I think, that we can kind of go anywhere we want to go because we were mm -hmm. actually able to. Um, but initially we were not. Like I think it's very hard to conceptualize that the first cities and the first um, civilizations came about because the geology was good there. Like either um, you had mineralogy, you had water, you had um, available food sources, um, and you had protection. Like if you had 
a mountain range that separate separated you from one side to the other or like one community is on one side and one was on the other um those two communities didn't necessarily um interact there or if they did it was like infrequent and dangerous and then you have um things like getting stuck in ice etc mm-hmm. um but in egypt in particular what i was thinking was um, they populated along the Nile, and then you began to go up and down the Nile for trade. And then eventually Egypt um, flourished and like conquered and spread out a little bit more. And that was mostly due to being on the Nile, being next to the Mediterranean, um, having that accessibility. And you see that in other like, early cities too, like the Tigris and the Euphrates, where they were able to facilitate that trade because they were next to the river. And then when the river flooded, like then they had access to crops and everything else. And... But that was due to the geology in the region um, and in other countries. Like that was the same. That's the same story. It's just repeated over and over. Okay. So I don't, I don't know how much we want to dive into like geomorphology and (laughs) and everything, but Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that it's a direct, I think that there needs to be some explanation of why the, why the Nile being where it is relates to geology. As in how the Nile got there? Yeah, yeah. So, or, or like the Tigris and the Euphrates. So, I mean, in, in terms of like, we can talk about like mountain building and tectonics and everything, but I, I'm trying to create that connection between there being a set of geological events or features and the presence of something like the Nile or the Tigris. Maybe a good example would be the Mississippi, um, where you have like one really large river that just starts up at the headwaters, like um, up by the Great Lakes. And then as it flows, it becomes larger because of all the waterways that flow into it, um, because you have um, the Appalachians on the east and the Rockies. Yeah. In the west. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, and so, and that would have define the civilizations that lived there before. Like you had the Mississippi um, native civilization um, and then that lived there obviously before Columbus. And then like now we have things like St. Louis and there's trade going down the Mississippi that was facilitated by its existence. So um, something like that I think might be easier um, to explain. I am not a hy- hydrologist. <laughs> I'm not an expert on waterways. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. I think I, w- I was thinking in terms more in terms of like the sprouting of civilizations, but I see what you're getting at that it's it's more than just the sprouting of civilizations, but it's their their interactions with one another. Yeah, exactly, and that's and things with mining too. Like um, when people traded with each other, obviously some areas were um, populous in copper, and some had gold, and then they traded back and forth. Or you had like the salt mines of Africa, um, and the gold mines of Africa too, and that like that fed those civilizations. Like they existed because they had mining on their property and like, and mining is literally like printing your own money, um, mm-hmm. which is a fast, I like just realized that recently. It's like, if you have a mine on your property, it's literally like printing your own money. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So for an ancient civilization, that would have been fantastic, obviously. And then their next door neighbor looks at them and they're like, gee, that's fantastic. I really would have loved to have some mines on my property. Maybe I'll just get buddy-buddy with you and like take you over. And then all of a sudden I have this mine on my property and I'm printing my own money. Um, so <laughs> I think a little bit of that and then combined with like 
geographical location and stuff like that too. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. And I think a, a good example there could be, you know, the Spanish empire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Portuguese, you know, going all the way to South America just to get um, to the city of El Dorado and try finding the ink and gold. Um, oh my God. <laughs> oh, I'll be forever. I'll be forever bitter about that. <laughs> um, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later with epidemiology, but oh my God. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's what I was just about to segue into because it's also a great example of how interactions um, can create these pandemics in all reality um, or just devastate populations. And you call that the sales of civilization. Yeah. Um, I think that is a great example where the Spanish came over and they wanted gold and then they inadvertently effect, affected 90% um, of the native population. And in that first 120 years, 90% of the native population died. Um, wow. Like there were 20 million people there and like one to 2 million people remained. It was absolutely horrific, the devastation that um, disease um, wrought on no, North America. diseases? Um, in particular, so smallpox is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually really interesting. I was doing some research into that interest um, recently. So there's smallpox and typhus were big ones. Um, there was a lot of minute disease, which was like background. I, I call that like background disease where it's like less um, large epidemics that were caused and more like isolated instances that just kind of existed within the population. Like you still had tuberculosis, um, yellow fever was introduced. That was also pretty bad. Um, you had like cases of diarrhea and cholera. And then um, you also had Kokolitsli, which is the one that I've been looking into. And it's what the story that? around it, huh? What is that? Co we don't know. <laughs> it is up for debate. Um, so the story of Kokolitsli is that there was an epidemic of smallpox around 1521, and that was that was very bad. That killed. Is this, I forget is this the percentage. All Latin America, or this is, is all this Latin America. Yeah, this is this is just existing like in North America, and I don't think we're positive how far north it spread. Yeah. Um, but smallpox was the first large epidemic and then you have an epidemic that pops up from 1545 1545 to i think 1551 um early 50s it lasted around four to five years and then you have another epidemic that happened in 1576 to 1581 and then you have like a final couple final epidemics um that were typhus and um, i think kokolitsi again and that was in like 1620. Interesting. But Kokolitsi is odd because the descriptions do not fit any disease that we know today. And like due to recent accounts in like mm -hmm. the story is large, but in 1970, um, new translations came out of a paper that was written back in 1576 um, that the Spanish kind of treated it as a new disease. Um, like they were unaware of it and they were surprised and wanted to like introduce this back to the old world as a new disease that they had discovered. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but um, mm -hmm. what was the state in the 1570s of epidemiology? Rough, but they were like from the accounts that they have, 
they knew to look for symptoms. So mm-hmm. they, they could at least describe symptoms. And that kind of comes back to like pattern tracing where like they could identify cholera because you have like similar symptoms and you have um, typhus because you have similar symptoms. And so they would usually recognize these based on the symptoms. Um, obviously, they didn't they didn't even know what bacteria were. They didn't know how to prevent it and they didn't know how it spread, but they were at least able to record those symptoms. And then that just depends how much you trust those symptoms. So the guy who actually recorded it in 1576 was named um, Armand Sandoles de Dois, um, which I probably butchered that pronunciation. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he was he was a Spanish assistant for the royal... Um, the royal physician who happened to be in New Spain at the time. Yeah. So these were actually um, authorized individuals who were there and then they actually recorded it and did like over 200 like interviews autopsies. Oh. Yeah. No, they actually did autopsies of the deceased. So it's actually really interesting that we have this very detailed account and he lists off like the symptoms where like you had green urine, you had like, and sorry, like, I guess that gets a no. little bit graphic. Keep on going. Um, on. It's interesting. Yeah. You had green and yellow urine. You had like inflamed liver. Um, you'd have like a distended stomach. And like when you, when they took their intestines out, like everything was bloody. Um, hemorrhaging. You had hemorrhaging from all the mucous membranes. Um, there were like pustules behind the ears. Um and then you also had a rash that typically covered the body, but it was also only in the chest area, I believe. Um, that was an interesting symptom. But like the biggest ones were that were bleeding from like the nose, the mucous membranes, and like what, what theories are out there then? It is it's a mixed bag. So in two thousand we had two papers come out that suggested um, Coccolitzli as a hemorrhagic fever, which is kind of, that's what I subscribe to <laughs> is okay. the hemorrhagic fever theory. So when you think of hemorrhagic fever, considered like Ebola or the Marburg okay. virus. Okay. That's, that's what I was just going to ask. I was like bleeding from like everywhere. sounds like <laughs> Ebola. Yeah, exactly. That's like the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and that was, but that was not like prominently described in the larger epidemic of like 1545. So it had some of the same symptoms, but they don't always overlap. Um, and it's also a little bit difficult because obviously you had this one like royally trained physician doing an autopsy, whereas you have just like Catholic priests and Judeo priests like just looking at people dying. Um, so obviously like the reports are going to be a little bit different. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where like how much overlap, how many patterns like yeah. do you want to interpret from that material? But hemorrhagic fever, yes. And then they recently came out in 2017 with um, a RNA analysis that came up with Salmonella C. Um, yeah. And then connected that, they said that Salmonella C occurred in Nordic countries. So you have a correlation between that and that could have come over from the old world to the new. So like it could have been Salmonella C. It is salmonella C is just about as deadly as like actual salmonella, and you put it in like actual quantities. Um, I think it has like a twenty to thirty percent death rate if left untreated. But today, I know that sounds weird, like salmonella, um, but that is what it is. That's why you eat raw eggs. And it's not as toxic today. So the the theory there is like, okay, well, salmonella C might have not have been or had been more toxic back then and then concluded to like this 80% death rate rather than 
like a, a new virus because that is a little bit crazy saying like oh it's this virus that we don't know that came from the new world that then infected all the people who lived there um specifically and didn't really affect the spanish and then vanished and we don't know what it is which it's kind of wild to say that yeah but i mean i, I feel like you also have to have a, a historical context here you know if if you're the spanish the spanish lied about many things beyond something that's as as um, neutral as a disease when reporting to the crown so mm-hmm. what what level of to use the geology term overprinting uh, <laughs> was there on on these historical records yeah yeah absolutely a valid question is and there isn't an answer <laughs> like I think it's subjective. I think it depends on the person you ask and like how much information that person has. Like if you ask me, like I I do subscribe to that viral theory just because looking at comparisons, we do actually have um, hemorrhagic fever viruses in uh, mice, rodents. And that was part of um, the theory in the 2000 paper where um, you were having all these changes to agriculture that the Spanish was bringing in. They were now producing wheat rather than corn. Um, and so all of these cornfields are now turning to wheat. You had um, mice moving around and they would have been in the homes of the Indians who were like producing and storing all this grain rather than the Spanish. So the disease would have taken longer to get to the Spaniards in the first place. And like either the native, like the native population being more affected, that's that's the reasoning for it. Um, and there are viruses in North American mice that can match these descriptions. Mm-hmm. How much that research overlaps and how much it's actually plausible, I'm not sure. I still have to do that sort of reading. I do have like several papers, but I don't know. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. so it seems like it seems like it's a good jumping point for inspiring young people to go do some research on historic diseases. Absolutely. Yes. You, everybody should definitely do that. <laughs> it's it's really interesting, especially when you get into it, because um, it changes your perspective of how humans lived. Because like, especially some of the reading I was just doing where you had native healers who were treating these people as they were dying and like the processes that we, they would go through and like their conflicts with the Jesuit priests who were like coming into the area and you get a really good picture of what people were afraid of back then. And it, it casts a new light on how people live today because we're not scared of it. Like, I think, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned is like, we are no longer scared of the things that our ancestors are scared of. Um, really good and yeah, it just, it puts a whole new perspective on the way that you live life and how you like, how you, how you treat diseases and how you treat death just because like, I don't that's a weird thing to say, but um, mm-hmm. it just changes your perspective a lot because you're able to look at these people who lived 500 years ago and it humanizes them in a way I don't think you get from other textbooks when you're just reading about, oh, like, yeah, Cortez came through and he, he really messed them up. Uh, that, was, that was bad. <laughs> um, I don't think you fully get that context until you've like you see it from their perspective and then these diseases wiping through and annihilating their culture, like as if um, COVID came through and all of a sudden, like America was just gone as if we didn't have any people anymore. Um, Yeah. Like that's absolutely crazy. And like to process that and like, I don't know. I, I think it's very humanizing and I fully encourage anybody if you're like ever interested in, Epidemiology, I think it's a very good pastime. 
No, that's, that's cool. It makes sense. And comparing it back again to geology, it's kind of like the, the KT extinction with the big asteroid coming and killing mm. the dinos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just wiped out. But I think I think you raise a good point about it being humanizing. That was not I was not expecting that. Um, but I think yeah. it's a good point. Um, and <laughs> with that in mind, and I kind of want to move on to today in understanding where we're at now. So you started off at the beginning, you were talking about how basically up until the modern age, geology kind of defined our boundaries um, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, and as we've continuously broken those boundaries by doing things like crossing the Atlantic, where our civilizations are hampered by new diseases and other features of our world. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, like I, I took a flight yesterday from Toronto to Tucson and it took four hours, right? Yeah. So, so where are we at now? Um, you know, I cross big mountains and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and you were with a bunch of people while you did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so where are we at today with it? Is is geology still defining our civilizations and, and our interactions? I think only in the lens of history. Like, I actually think that's a really good example. Like, yeah, you were able to travel very quickly, um, not that dangerously, and and you're fine. You're still here. Like, yeah, so. I think it's only through the lens of history that we really see those geological differences. Um, and then you still have like some remnants coming from mining, I think is really the best example where you still have mines related to geological processes. You still have volcanoes, volcanic culture. <laughs> um, if I can venture to say that you have like geographical boundaries that are still defined. Like you have Japan, um, you have the Philippines and stuff like that. So but not as much, like right, because we have airplanes and we have methods to get around those boundaries. This is this is slightly beyond the scope of what either of us know about. But what if we were to extrapolate it further in terms of planetary geology? As in, as in, like there is a real chance that we could infect Mars. Just as humans, because I I do see that, or like infect whatever's living on mars with like our, our either either like, or just yeah bacteria. You know, it's, it's a similar a, a spread of something foreign yeah i think i think that's gonna happen either way um have you read world war of the worlds i think that's a really neat um very much victorian illustration it's where um aliens come to earth and they terrorize earth and they take over earth um and then all of a sudden they all stop moving and they die and this the narrator goes up to them and he realizes that they were just done in by bacteria. And it was very much like an alien xenophobic horror story um, that I quite love. <laughs> I think that might have actually been the start of my uh, um, epidemiology spiel as a child. But uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, um, but that's, yeah, that's a good example. There's, it could definitely cross over and we'll definitely be infecting like if we go up there and even our robots and rovers, like mm-hmm. I think that's, that's still going to happen. It's just kind of. And then I, I also want to ask, so I don't know if you'll have an answer to this, mm-hmm. but you know, like we have, we have meteorites from the moon and meteorites from Mars, right? Like we have chunks of rock that got thrown into space and somehow 
by such slim probabilities ended up back on Earth. Um, so what I'm trying to ask is, in a sense, does the geologic processes of, I don't even know if you can call that geologic processes, but the astrophysics maybe is the correct discipline of our solar system, does, does that drive some of this interchange? Both, both I mean, on the scale of, of planets interacting with one another, but then more locally, like Pangaea, where we had the spread of animals across all seven continents. So would you, would you consider these types of interactions a similar um, connection between like epidemiology and geology? I suppose. I've never really thought about it that way, but I, I can... I can see that simply because it's coming from a place that we don't know and then coming into contact with us. Um, it's crossing that boundary of space. I, yeah, I, I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. Um, I'm, I wasn't totally sure what I was asking, but <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I think I was trying to get to is that on a broader sense that we're, are connected in these ways and all these dynamical systems are, are causing interactions, mm -hmm. um, whether that's geological or it's spreading bacteria or whatever else, viruses, but that there's those connections. Yeah. Okay. I still don't know if I'm fully convinced though about it defining civilization. So I guess why would you say that Epidemiology is the sales, geology is the rudder in terms of, of all the other interactions that occur with civilizations. So like I'm thinking of things like agriculture and weather patterns and just pure luck. On, on I think luck is the big one that I think um, also likely defines situations simply because, uh, yeah, you trip and fall and sometimes people are unlucky and sometimes civilizations have bad millennias maybe um <laughs> but um for the first two like i think agriculture is the perfect example because um you're not going to have good agriculture if you don't have geologically a good area to do that and like uh farming next to the nile is better than farming in a desert um and you also have like if you have a desert on the other side of a mountain ridge, then like either the farming isn't going to be good or you have to um, dig canals and like um, make sure you have proper water in that area. So I, I think that actually defines it more. Like you need to have the right geological properties or you have to surmount those hurdles to actually be able to thrive in that kind of environment. And I think that's one thing that humans are very good at, right, is we're very good at adapting. Um, like we, we created tools to be able to adapt and like overcome those hurdles. So yeah, I think we don't look at geology as a hurdle simply because it's always there. It's always beneath us. It's always um, existent and it affects our environment in ways that we don't often see in our day-to-day -day life. But no, that's, that's a good point. I think definitely, definitely things like the, the people in that area like affect it too. Like I'm not saying that, nothing else drives it i just think it's one of the underappreciated aspects and like when you look at it like the earth we live on formed us in a way and like in some ways history discredits that and gives like all the credits to the humans who like overcame it and it's like yeah but 
the reason we had to make those decisions was because of geology and like because of epidemiology. Like we changed our habits and our behavior to fit those hurdles and like overcome them. So yeah, that's that's a good point. And so learning about Pluto as a planet, um, and during that time, I learned about Venus too, and why there's like no life on Venus and why mm-hmm. Venus is so hot. And it turns out that Venus is it is closer to the sun. You know, so that is like part of the reason why it's hotter. Um, but when its tectonics stopped and new material was stopped, stopped getting recycled and like CO2 is being sequestered, all that type of stuff, mm-hmm. the atmosphere got really thick. And that's why it's completely inhospitable. Hmm. And it's really weird that Earth is one of the few planets that still has active tectonics. And as you said, you know, we, we give humans a lot of credit, but there's kind of a, a weird luck that Earth is still active. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then all, all that connects back to Pluto, just to tie the knot, is because Pluto has active tectonics in, in a way, which is really freaky. So <laughs> on, on that note, I, I want to finish off by talking about mining. We've already talked a little bit about how Mining is one of these weird things that causes people to go places that they haven't gone before mm-hmm. and you know, bringing stuff like diseases. Can you just extrapolate on, on what you mean there, going to further detail? Giving specific examples on diseases in general or just, like just, in- just, just in general, like why do, you, why do you think people don't just go and explore? Why, why is it mining that pushes them somewhere? Ah. I think in some ways, human greed, which is kind of like a very pessimistic way to look at things. But I think humans have always kind of had the drive for more to be like successful. Um, in And mining is a very easy way to monitor that. Like if you're able to uh, produce more of this thing than other people are, then good for you, you're being successful. And being able to <laughs> being able to compare that to um, other people, I think it's a very easy metric to say, like, "Oh, I have more money than you, thus I am successful." Mm-hmm. So, I think a little bit of, is just simply greed in a way. But um, I also think it drives progress. So I was I was looking at um, a video online put together by Dr. Isabel Barton. Um, she very kindly shared her research online, <laughs> and I was fascinated by. Uh, mining process put together by the Egyptians where they would um, pack fires up against the rock. So they would mine or chop down wood, um, bring it into the mine and then set up a fire near wall rock um, Mm -hmm. that they wanted broken. So they would heat it up and then some poor unlucky soul would then come and toss a bucket of water on the fire, thus producing steam and fracturing it, um, which is oddly similar, not quite similar, but similar to like our fracking process today. Yeah. and just kind of ingenious. Like, I'm very impressed that they actually thought of that. Um, and then, like, I think that that bleeds into other progress where you have using steam for other things, which obviously that's far down the line, like thousands of years later, but you're able to use steam for steam engines, using the, like burning water and then steam mm-hmm. to produce electricity and to produce um, locomotion. Yeah. And then that furthering things onward and onward so that like to use tools for more industry. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I think 
that drives people to come up with new ideas to figure out ways to overcome those hurdles, if that makes any sense. No, no, that makes complete sense. And I think, like, I think one of the biggest geological boundaries would be like something like the Gobi Desert, for example, that, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mongols kind of conquered and with that, they were innovative and it, it forced them to be innovative. So on that, so that, that explains why, why mining and kind of exploration be tied to innovation, but you brought up fracking and how it's, it's similar. Like we're using water to expand and, and fracture rock. Mm-hmm. And to me, that brings up a really big question of why haven't we moved past stuff that the Egyptians have done? In- <laughs> I think some of it is defined by physics. Like, so going into the realm of chemistry, um, like all our developments developments in chemistry were started by people who wanted to find the philosopher's stone like that was inherently what they wanted was to turn lead into gold and somehow from that we developed our whole elemental periodic table like defined what air was defined what carbon dioxide was and like how that affects us and how it kills us like literally all of our medical knowledge stems from like two random people back in 1200 and like 1500 just wanting to find gold (laughs) or like change something into another thing. Um, Yeah. And I think if we were able to do that, I think we would all be extremely happy and the environment would be better for it. (laughs) Um, Everybody would be happy. Um, So I think some of that is simply like bound by the laws of physics that like we cannot produce one thing out of another thing without significant amount of energy. And I think we're getting closer, right? They're like, that whole process of metallurgy and chemistry, trying to get the most recovery you can out of an ore rock and um, trying not to be wasteful and trying to improve the ways that we do metallurgy, I think are very inherent to that process of changing like one thing into another thing, if that makes any sense. Um, Not molecularly, but trying to streamline and improve that process. Yeah, but to answer your question, I think it's in some ways it's bound by the laws of physics. In other ways, like what drives us forward is probably just that need for improvement. Like I don't, and in some ways, like a very human nature that we don't want to see people suffer and we don't want to see people hurt. And like, that's also what's driven a lot of improvements by saying like, okay, we don't want people to get hurt while mining. So we've improved like safer, um, much more manageable techniques and automated like a lot of processes that would injure people in the past. and like in other industries too, um, like trying not to injure people, trying to improve people, trying to do things faster and better. Um, and I think a little bit of that is industrial revolution based, but still inherently, I think it's driven by the need to want to help people and like wanting to make sure people go home safely at the end of the day and that like things kind of exist as they are and they don't change too much in some ways. If that even makes sense, because that question was inherently about change, but I think humans naturally like things to stay the same and they don't like yeah. big life changes. I don't know if I feel fully satisfied with that on a, on a personal <laughs> yeah. level. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think though it's a interesting, good point, but in some sense we are bounded. And I guess earlier I was asking about, you know, what's, what's bounding us now in terms of modernity because you know mountain ranges aren't bounding us but perhaps perhaps this is a way that we're still bounded is that we're we're reliant upon 
what's around us, um, whether mm-hmm. that's gases, whether that's liquids, um, solids in terms of metals, et cetera. In a sense, we're still bounded by that geology. Our innovation is, is bounded by what problems we're seeing. And until geology decides to have some new big grand problem, um, we're, we're going to be stuck. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily stuck. I think it's simply one another one of those hurdles that we'll find a way around. Like I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think of it as a boundary so much as just a hurdle that we were able to cross and we're going to be able to overcome at some point. And like ideally complete those hurdles safe, more safely, effectively, um, sustainably. Like I, I think in that sense, progress is going to be made. It's just on as a whole, it will look slow, but like over time it will be much faster. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that's, I appreciate your optimism. I, I feel like <laughs> pessimistic here. Kind of wrapping things up, you know, where where does that leave us in terms of mining civilization? I mean, we've talked we've talked about a lot of things. And yeah, I just I kind of want to finish up by asking for some of your personal thoughts on on where we're heading and, and what we can do um, to continuously improve. I think in one way, it's like just to look at the bigger picture and to objectively look at those boundaries as something that we're able to overcome because like, I think tying back into geology and epidemiology, like those are hurdles and you're always going to fail at something the first time. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. looking back, like I don't think we would look at what the Egyptians did as extremely successful or like, I bet they didn't have great recovery on all of their gold mining. (laughs) So, but like we've improved that. And then like the leaps and bounds that medicine has come, um, even though we're still bounded by bacteria and by viruses and by like using COVID as as an example, but we were able to overcome that with new technology and looking at it through RNA as like something that can be overcome and we can figure out this problem. Um, Yeah. So I think just, being able to take a step back and treating these things as problems with one step at a time. I think I also need to like apply this great wisdom in my own personal life because I'm really <laughs> bad at taking a step back and looking at things as like small steps to a problem. But um, yeah, I think treating society like that and treating treating humanity like that as like, and obviously trying to do the best you can, but being okay if like mm-hmm. it's, not the first time but we can but we can improve that and we can like we can make mining more sustainable and we can make all these things better than they were before wow that's that's really positive (laughs) it's really (laughs) true it's really true and i agree completely i i just i say it's really positive because i I find very little i can argue with on that To advance this further, as, as we're now philosophizing, um, <laughs> we're, we're both young people in the mining industry. We both were in the southwest of, of the U.S. And I think for myself, but also, you know, a lot of people in, in our positions, it can be particularly, I don't know if the correct word is daunting or hard to identify um, what actions you know, we can take as individuals to, to make that continuous improvement. Absolutely. I think it's 
I think daunting is the right word. And I am probably not as positive in like in the day to day because it can be overwhelming um, and really rough. I think identify what you're passionate in and where you want to see change. Like for me, I think that's going to look like changing. Like this is way in the future, like large scale goals that I haven't even tackled yet, but trying to tackle education and how, not necessarily how people are educated, but like informing people on these sorts of things and like being able to tackle those problems from a scientific manner. And like, that's just something that I'm passionate in and that I would like to see change that I know that I feel like nobody's going to change unless I step up and change it. And I think being able to find those things in your personal life or at work or um, wherever Mm -hmm. you plan to find that, um, I think being able to find that and even minutely, like being able to make your friend lives, friends' lives better or being able to make like your partner's life better. I think that gives things an inherent sort of meaning. And you know that even if you didn't change the world, like you change one person's day and or you you change the course of your life, like possibly. So I think in that, like in the same sense, kind of keeping it small and keeping it objective, like there's a sort of perspective to that, maybe. Perhaps perhaps it's because I'm too much of an engineer. but my, my thinking's generally kind of like want to create something that's that's new and better. But mm-hmm. I think you bring up a good point that you know changing somebody's day is as impactful, if not more impactful, in all reality um, than some of those more material changes. Because um, mm-hmm. again, you know, I'm going to go back to that. I think it was Lawrence Krauss I was listening to. When he was talking about Pluto, he was also talking about climate change. He said, you know, at the end of the day, in, in a million years, it won't matter what we're doing now. If we're here or not, the Earth won't care. Mm-hmm. Right? And so making those small changes in other people's days are probably going to be a lot more impactful. No, I, complete, I completely agree with that. I think, I think that's really important. And I think some people, some people would benefit from knowing that the earth is going to continue whether we're here or not and (laughs) like i'm thinking of uh, one particular extremely rich person in particular um who has grand ideas about (laughs) going to other planets and i think he would benefit from knowing that the earth doesn't care mars doesn't care like if we're here or not like we just kind of exist and i think that's a very geological perspective to have and a lot of people would argue with it but like we're, we're just like parasites on on the earth yeah we just kind of we, we are we exist we exist within a system and that kind of goes back to epidemiology in general like we like exist and lived in tandem with viruses and bacteria and all these other very tiny hosts that we don't even didn't even know existed um and we just kind of we live in systems with them like they exist and we exist and other creatures mm-hmm. exist and we live on a geologic entity floating through space in the grand space and time <laughs> that's that's pretty deep so my my last, my last hypothesis that i want to explore is we started off at the very beginning we were talking about patterns in geology and we're talking about how there's you look at the micro to get the macro what, what you were just bringing up i think is on a similar theme that like on a grand scale humans are just kind of living off the earth on a smaller scale, 
viruses and bacteria live off of their hosts. And presumably at a smaller scale, there's atoms or something, something smaller that, that mm -hmm. is manifesting into the bacteria and viruses. It continues to go all the way down until, as far as we know, like neutrinos and um, muons, etc. And so my, what I want to ask for your opinion on with this is that what would you recommend people do to be able to understand that macro states arise from micro states and that, you know, going back to even pattern searching, like what, what patterns can they look for to understand what macro states are, are going to develop? That is a big question. <laughs> I think history lends itself to this very well, at least like, like as an entry point, because especially when you study one particular time in history, you begin to get an idea of like the people who lived at that time of history, like what they might've gone through, what they did in their daily lives, like how they felt about like individual things. And then you begin like, obviously you read that and then you look back at your own life and you're able to make comparisons and like, see what's different and see what's, is still the same. Um, I think that is a good entry point. And then I do think I'm biased, obviously very biased, but I think geology in particular lends itself to this very well because it's a combination of all the sciences, right? It's like, it's not typically just the study of rocks. It's typically like what lived on this rock um, in paleontology. And then all of a sudden you start getting into archaeology. And if you're in um, like mining, you're looking at chemistry and you're looking at all those changes of states that change over time. And like, I think inherently um, you begin to grasp that bigger picture. And I think that's, I think it will be different for different people. Like I think different people will come to that conclusion um, either more easily than others or like grasp it in different ways than others. But um, I think that is a good place to start. I think another one is probably um, just being curious about how things got to where they are in your daily life. Like, how, how did your book get on its shelf? And how did the food get on your table? Mm -hmm. And like, all of a sudden, like, it starts off this chain reaction of like, oh, well, it came from this location. And then all of a sudden, you start like, or this farm raised chickens, and then suddenly this farm got out, bought out by a bigger farm, and then the bigger farm went into bankruptcy, and something like something, yeah. something. And like, it, it just spirals kind of its way down back to you. And then you look at the history of like how the farm got to be, or like the history of chickens, if you're like interested in, I don't know, different species of chickens, which is Chicken pretty up. weird and fascinating. But like, seeing that spiral, um, and being curious inherently about how things got to where you are today. I think that's the best place to start because it is, it goes back to you. That is, that's the key thing. Like all of these things are affecting you inherently just as you exist and being able to see those ties and saying like, when I, when I, go and pick up a book like it came from the publisher and then the author wrote it but the author did this research and then going back in the sources and finding what they used like yeah it, it just it, it all comes back to you so it is very important to you hopefully like to go searching for the answers to that question mm -hmm. and i think that that probably is actually the best entryway 
Yeah. Oh, I, I love that answer. That's, I, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think it's a nice neutral perspective, but it's it allows you to dive into a variety of fields and areas that you otherwise would be unaware of. Yeah. And I think... I think that can be anything. Like, I don't think it needs to be like history. Like maybe some people will say like, oh, it, it has to be history. It has to be this one specific period in history. If you don't look at the industrial revolution, like you won't understand anything. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. I think, I think it goes back, but like understanding those concepts and like being able to see how they relate to you today. I think that starts very small. It's like, if you're interested in carpet, maybe like um, you can look at the development of rug making and like Persia and how rugs got to where they are and like who bought rugs and why did they buy rugs? Well, I, I think, I think with that, we have left the audience with many places to go, many questions to try finding answers to, <laughs> and many patterns to observe. Um, so I just want to thank you for, for taking this time to be able to chat and dive into all these really interesting concepts. Um, I personally feel enlightened. Um, I feel like I have a different perspective on geology and our interactions as, as a civilization. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. I'm glad. The diseases that is, yeah. Okay, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, tuberculosis is one of the um, diseases that has been with us since kind of the dawn of civilization. So we think it originally came from um, M. bovis, which is um, basically the same uh, bacterium, but it's found in the soil and M. tuberculosis is as well. Um, and then cattle ate it, and then we think that tuberculosis then passed to us uh, through ambivis and then like um, through milk and just the digestion of cattle. So like us living next to bovids in general. But we can see like tuberculosis traced all the way back to like mammoths in the ice age. Um, so it was, it has been with us. Yeah. Since for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and because of that, like it actually ties together geography and epidemiology really well because we see native populations of tuberculosis interacting better with their host populations of humans, even when those humans are mixed. So there was a study in San Francisco of people that had tuberculosis, and this was recent, like uh, post 2000. And um, they did research on different populations of people in San Francisco. So you had the Asian variants of tuberculosis that preferred Asian people as its host versus um, European tuberculosis, and it prefers Europeans as its host. And we were able to see that in like a mixed heterogeneous population of yeah. San Francisco. Wow. Uh, yeah, and that's and that's just because it's developed with us for such a long time. Like, so it is developed to our bodies are developed to like receive it as a host and fight it off. It has developed, evolved to. It's, it's co-evolved. Like t- yeah, there we go. Um, to take down our defenses better. Interesting. So I feel like this is kind of a dumb question, but I honestly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Two things. First is, is TB, is it a virus or a bacteria? It is a bacteria. It's bacteria. Yes. Okay. 
that makes more sense why it was in the soil then. Yeah. Okay. So that was my first question. Then my second question is like, I hear about TB, but I don't know what it is. I know it's respiratory. Mm-hmm. Wait, how prolific is it? What does it do? Kind of a basic summary. Yeah. Um, tuberculosis is, it, it is a respiratory symptom or um, disease, but it starts in the lungs and then it moves throughout your body. So it's it will actually mess you up in several hundred ways. Um, if it gets into your bones, it will you'll develop scoliosis. Um, hunchbacks, if it gets into your spine and your spinal cord, it will, you'll actually develop a hunchback, which is where like hunchbacks and like Victorian areas like yeah. usually come from. It's like that, I say trope, it's not a trope, but yeah, that heuristic. Um, and then if it gets into your bloodstream, it's very hard to get rid of, um, but it's easy to do that just because if you like cough up phlegm, then it gets into your digestive system, it'll mess up your di- digestive tract, and then it'll go from there to any bodily fluids and then if bodily fluids it can get into your bloodstream um so it will just mm-hmm. it'll go everywhere and it will basically just destroy your body from the inside out um but it starts in the lungs it is in usually inhaled through water droplets it is and then gets into your lungs and the good the good side i guess of tuberculosis <laughs> if there is a good side is that only 10 percent of infections actually become active so usually your body has evolved to fight off tuberculosis so what it does is it like creates these nodules, these white nodules in your lungs where tuberculosis basically hides inside and becomes inactive. It's like, okay, this body is fighting me off like, and I can't win. So I'm just going to go into hibernation. And that's what happens with latent TB. So if your immune system for any reason decides to drop, then TB becomes active again. So it will go like throughout your life unless it's cut short or like unless for some reason like unless you're immunocompromised yeah when you're immunocompromised um tb will become active again which is why huh yeah it it kind of is which is why it's really bad in combination with other diseases so um yeah that makes sense okay Mm -hmm. so in like it became super prolific obviously in like in the victorian era like i feel like tb is known for just destroyed people and then for like, oh, it disappeared. And now TB is gone and nobody thinks about it anymore. Um, And that's one of the things I find fascinating about is is it it has just been erased from common memory. Like everybody looks at it as like, oh, they had consumption. Oh, that poor person. And then like, it just disappeared. Nobody thinks about it. Even polio, like people are like, oh, okay, polio is still around, like, but in India. So, or like something like that. We don't have to think about it, but I, I know polio exists. Um, yeah. TB has just been white. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah, like sorry. at the beginning, I didn't even I just knew it was respiratory and that's it. Yeah. Um, so it it became so prolific just because people are now living in closer quarters. So because it's respiratory, obviously, you're going to pass it back and forth. Um, but it's such a slow burner disease that um, you can still – you can still become an adult. Like even if you're infected with TB as a child, especially if like, you're like well-fed, healthy, like you have Latin TB, like you can still grow up and just like be fine. Um, you might, you'll be affected by um, like rickets. Like rickets is actually the bone disease that you get from TB usually oh, okay. as a child when you have like vitamin D deficiency. Um, so when you grow up, um, you'll be able to have kids, like do all that, but then you'll get like infected with something else. Like you'll be infected by, I don't know, cholera. And then, that combined with TB will then take you out. But usually 
that TV will become active and then you'll pass it on to your kids who are growing up and then mm -hmm. your kids will have TV from childhood and can like it literally continues onward, which was one of the difficulties in identifying TV because people thought it was hereditary. Like you would have whole families that would just like grow up, have TV, pass it on to their kids. Kids would grow up. Kids would like get active TV, die, like have their kids like and it would just pass on and on, which is absolutely terrible. Like it's the, one of the most horrific things I can imagine. But that was that was common. That was just like everybody knew somebody who had died of TB. Um, so how, how don't we all have TB at this point? Because of antibiotics. So the develop of and development of antibiotics directly coincides with um, TB treatment. So you kind of like remember sanatoriums, which were usually TB treatment centers. Um, so people would go over there, like people were starting to learn how to treat it. Um, it was also a dual whammy with the um, flu of 1918, but that's kind of a separate story and also specular um, speculation. So um, you had these sanatoriums and like people were, they had identified TB and they were trying to come up with a cure for it. And then this guy identified toxins that came out of bacteria that were able to kill TB. And then that became the first antibiotics. And so you had... You had streptomycin, para-aminogalistic acid, and then contaben, and those are the first three antibiotics that were used against tuberculosis. And it was it was pretty much a miracle drug. Like people were like, "Oh my god, I was at death's door," and then they gave me um, strep, and then <laughs> not actual strep, but yeah. strep, and it went away. It was fine, and so that lasted for like five years, and then other. Other antibiotics began to come into play and also drug-resistant TB. But that's kind of the story. Like, in general, um, we were able to, like, weed out a lot of TB because of antibiotics. I, I had no clue. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is a question you may not have an answer to as well, but I'm mm -hmm. maybe curious. So this is not two questions. Yeah. So first, you said, you said they found TB in mammoths. Yes. How did they do that? <laughs> so basically they used DNA identification and also bone bone oh. analysis. So because um, TB pretty much destroys your bone structure, especially yeah. in bovids, looking at the hooves of bovids and like sheep, cows, and then mammoths, like you're actually able to see deformation. So like a lot of the mammoths by the time they went extinct actually had like TB deformations. And I think, I think this is contested. Like I, wouldn't take my advice as law but in the book i read that is like they're identifying it via dna analysis and also deformations in bone structure wow that's quite incredible um, yeah okay my second question is so if tb's been around since mammoths do we know why i'm gonna say i'm gonna say in a very anthropocentric way why it continues to want to harm us. I know that it does not have like <laughs> want, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it would be advantageous for it to continue to attack the immune system of, of whatever it's in rather than just exist with it. Like all the other bacteria in our guts and everywhere else. I mean, I think it actually does a pretty good job of living with us because it becomes like it hibernates and becomes Latin. So it's actually got a pretty like decent chance of survival and like prolonging, unfortunately prolonging death until like it's passed on or whatever. Well, another, another good question for 
some some researcher. Yeah, an out. actual an actual epidemiologist. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else on TV? Um. Yeah, I guess. So the story with antibiotics, it like it doesn't actually stop there. It pretty much it continues onward, um, because we see drug resistant bacteria. So obviously. TB is a bacteria and it becomes resistant like any other bacteria. Mm-hmm. And they knew, they knew that this was a problem back in the 50s, um, but they didn't really have the tools to combat it. And also they thought that they could eradicate it before it become a real problem. But now we have, we have about 16 drugs that can fight against TB. And usually, usually only like four of those are actually effective. And the rest TB has depending on the strain become like resistant to one of them and it's That's called scary. now hmm? That's scary. Oh, yeah. it's horrifying um it is now like mdr so when it's resistant to i think four or more antibiotics it becomes classified as like mdr and so basically you have to throw every biotic we have against it and it's a routine it is not like you take it for two weeks and then you stop it's literally a routine of up to two years where you're taking antibiotics every single day um and often these have like pretty horrific side effects um like nausea blindness are some of the big ones you can you can mess up your life simply taking the antibiotics but obviously like it's either take that or you die of tb (laughs) so it's kind of terrifying yeah in the shadows (laughs) yeah it's um it's it's interesting and like obviously there's still people who are out there working for a vaccine for tuberculosis um that's a whole other story about like why we haven't found an effective vaccine we do technically have a vaccine but its actual effectiveness is argued over and it's like it might not be effective and it kind of inhibits our ability to detect um tuberculosis so they stopped using it but like now they might use it again we don't really know yeah so it's it is it's an interesting disease that will continue to be with us for a long time. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There, there you go. Now you know my little spiel about tuberculosis. <laughs> I know a lot more now. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I really, like I said, I didn't know. Um, do, uh, not, do not worry. I have like, I didn't knew nothing. And that's why like I went searching and reading. Like oh, I that's cool. that's really didn't cool. know anything before.